You're listening to Ludophilia. I'm Richard Moss. You know, I, was, I told you I looked at my work and I thought about what I'd done in preparation for this. And my first reaction to talking about play was kind of, I realized how playful Monks was and, and, and how effective that was. But I sort of, the way I was raised was not really the way I'd want anyone else raised. But like when I took my first photography class, you know, I was, my parents, you know, screamed and hollered at me and and made it clear I would never do anything like that again when I was living in their house. So no no creativity was not encouraged in my household at all. And maybe I sometimes think that's why Monks was so special, because I never thought that just... That anything I made because I made it was worthwhile. We had to really think, you know, what and do go way beyond what other people were doing for this to for me to put this out. Last time on the Ludophilia, I talked to the creator of a quirky, forward-thinking, surprising, essential work of early multimedia. A guy called Brian Thomas. You just heard him a moment ago. His Macintosh hypercard stack, if monks had Max true to the Mac spirit, defied convention and dared to be different. It was a landmark in software development, a creative, playful, explorative program that he at first made while working by day on a production line at a print shop, and that he expanded with help from volunteer programmers who likewise worked by day outside computer industry. Programmers like Philip A. Moore Jr., who was a postman. This was the high time of multimedia, when it seemed that software could change the world for its ideas and its ideas alone. But as they expanded the virtual monastery library, the world was entering a radical transformation. And just as they prepared to put out a commercial version of Monks with a publisher called The Voyager Company, Brian could see this shift happening right in front of him. Here's how he remembers it. Well, not not the internet. See, you, ha- you have to remember, when I was made monks, the first monks, there was no World Wide Web. People bought computers because it was a thing to buy. And then they didn't know what to do with them. They couldn't do any of the stuff you do on the web. They couldn't watch movies. They couldn't uh, read interesting web pages. They basically had a word processor and they had games, you know, that were, um, and there were some great, great games which were inspiring, like we talked about. And it seems to me the games were better then, but I'm no expert on the games we have now. So once I was working with the Voyager Company, the World Wide Web was in full swing. And that was really like, you know, when the meteor came that killed the dinosaurs, the World Wide Web was the meteor that killed CD ROMs. and, and the kind of multimedia I was doing. And we knew, you know, that we had to get this stuff out fast because there was a limited time uh, for it to sell. But credit to him, he continued to expand monks for years after that. For far too long, for far too long, yeah. It wasn't actually until the early 2000s that Brian finally threw in the towel and stopped developing his monastery library, more than 15 years after he'd begun. Now, true to the spirit of monks, we're going to delve into what Brian did next, along with what his relationship is with play, and we're going to do it in a more freeform style than usual, 
This episode may jump around a bit, but I hope you can follow the threads from one point to the next. When I interviewed Brian in January, he had recently returned from a six-month trip in India. We took photos, met lots of people, found some adventure, and we'll get to all of that later. But when I first contacted Brian, which was over a year ago now, about doing an interview for the show and for my upcoming book on Mac gaming history, he told me to look at a photo essay he'd recently done on a series of events called Pedal Palooza, which is a yearly thing in Portland that tries to use fun to draw attention from car dependency over to cycling. There's a naked bike ride, toll bike jousting, an architecture tour for cyclists, a county bike fair, a midsummer night's dream ride in which Shakespeare's play is read aloud as they go, and a pervading sentiment throughout the whole festival that fun can change the world. Because in a consumerist society, having fun is more valued than doing what's good. So, in other words, making it fun to do good makes it more likely that people will do good. Or as Brian wrote at the end of the essay, he who controls the fun controls the future. Brian tried to report on Pedalpalooza in a particular way. He wanted to avoid, as much as possible, being an outsider looking in, which is typically how you do journalism, to capture the energy of proceedings as a participant, not an observer. Actually, speaking of Pedalpalooza thing, I, I'm very curious about your your photography projects um, and and how you were trying to find ways to to capture things without being uh, removed from them. Yeah, I, I, I was certainly doing that with Pedalpalooza and uh, not so much perhaps with India so far, but I was really, uh, when the election was stolen in 2000, I, I, was, I was really um, disturbed. I, I began hanging out with anarchists a lot in the streets and so the first pedal paloozas I, I, I was attending, and when I decided to do the photo content, the photo blog about that, because I wanted to talk about what these people had accomplished by making, you know, making it cool to ride bicycles, and it was a tremendous political accomplishment by, by con- you know, making bicycles more fun and sexy than driving cars, with naked bicycle rides and and bicycle bicycle jousting and everything. So I wanted to show that and. Uh, Tried to do that by participating in the, in the events and taking pictures. But it's hard when you start to be more and more, um, try to take better and better pictures. It's hard to know when to stop clicking the shutter. Yeah, it's always an issue that you grapple with when you're trying to document something. Yeah, I was really good at it um, in my times with the anarchists. And I think... Uh, I'm sort of grappling with how to do that. And I'm actually good. When I go to India next time, I'm going to buy a new camera for the first time. And I'm going to buy a mirrorless camera. It's more of a tourist-like camera. And uh, Yeah, I, I like mirrorless cameras because they're very, they're smaller and they're lighter. Um, no, DSLRs are so never, big and bulky. I never would have bought a DSLR except if I, if it hadn't been 2006 and the, there weren't any mirrorless cameras at all. 
how did you get interested in photography? Well, I had a photo class in in um, in high school. Um, I took I, we had electives. We had to take, we were forced to take electives, and so I took photography. Got in a lot of trouble for that, but I did take the class. And I think you know, I was just good at it. And uh, never really understood what it was that I was good at. I mean, it seemed like a very simple thing, but writing is much harder. For me. I like writing much better. But when I say, and I think I, if I have enough time, I can write pretty well. But if I had your job as a journalist and I had to turn out articles every couple days, I would be miserable. I just write very slowly. So that's what I mean when I say I'm not good at writing. Pictures, photography always seemed easier. And I gave it up for 15, 20 years to do monks just refused to do it because it seemed too easy and too easy to get beautiful pictures that didn't mean anything. Yeah, and especially these days now where everyone has a camera, uh, a photograph on its own has much less meaning because everyone takes a thousand vacation snaps. That's right, and a lot of the famous pictures, like the one of the woman, child, little girl running, running down the street, um, because her home has been napalmed, little Vietnamese girl, that really doesn't mean anything unless you know the context. So pictures usually don't mean anything at all. And uh, and the other thing that I, I, I would say to myself is, you know, my creative life is very different now. When I made Monks, because of the timing, you know, I told you I could do these crazy things. Nobody was really interested in hearing about evolution, but I... Because my work was, I guess it was, you know, no, there weren't, I didn't have any competition was one way to put it. I think we did a damn good job, but now I can make damn good pictures and nobody cares. <laughs> nobody. <laughs> because there's so much photography that it doesn't matter. So it's very different for me. Fact. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that people loved it and used it for decades, but uh, it's um, it's like a branch of evolution that didn't, uh, as I said, you know, the perfect analogy is when I was in New York with a Voyager company and the Criterion Corporation split off, you know, digital selling movies on DVDs with extras. That was the future, not making CD-ROMs. And I, I think... Um, I know you're really interested in play, and, and that's why I asked you to read my the, the Petapalooza photo essay, an example of activists making play or fun, you know, politically meaningful. And that's what we need to do. And and I feel like there is a an unequal unequal contest between activists, people who want a better life, and for the whole planet, not just their own families. And corporations, you know, for fighting over what's, you know, the control of what's fun. Do you have any thoughts on that, Richard? I, I think about it sometimes, and I, and I still struggle to 
put it into words. Um, uh, yeah, I, I agree that play, it, it needs to be in the hands of the, the, the individual, the, not the... To, to be truly playful, it needs to be coming organically, not um, set from above with someone dictating what, what is and is not play. Play is invention, play is uh, an impulse. And it, it, it's a way to, to learn about yourself, about the world, to, to, to change the world around you, and to reimagine the world around you. And yeah, in some ways it is uh, getting more complicated how to play in this modern world. It's getting more expensive. I, I mean, I, I think the money is the key to it. You know, it's a, to me, I'm able to play with my photography now for only one reason. And that's that when I decided to make a commercial version of Monk's Head Max, I was in Los Angeles, I was working in print shops, and everything had been we just given away for free. And I decided, you know, I, just, I knew that I, had get a, I could get a contract with a Voyager company if I produced something. And I made it the, the best decision of my life. I, I decided to, to sell my townhouse, like such like a condominium, like in Los Angeles and move to Portland, Oregon. And the reason that was such, and I did that because I had a mortgage there and I looked at the, the property values in the city. I bought the house I'm in now. For twenty-seven thousand, it's a four-bedroom Victorian. It was in great shape uh, structurally, and now this, you know, is the coolest city in America now. And the house is worth half a million. Rents are way up, and I can rent the bedrooms out. There's four bedrooms. I can rent the other bedrooms out and go to India. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be able to play like I am now. And I worry about the future where everything is so expensive that. Young people are going to be wage slaves their entire life. If I, if I was giving some advice to someone, um, a young person, I would say, you know, think about moving to Cleveland. <laughs> the property values are not that expensive there. Maybe you can buy a house that will be your friend for your life, you know, instead of a house that just, you know, you, you're a slave to the, the mortgage payments. But yes, it's, it's very difficult to think about how, as adults, we can continue to play uh, in this world where increasingly you're having to work 12 hours a day just to survive. Right. And it's important to understand that there are places where the cost of living is much cheaper. I wrote a blog post on my last entry that uh, Calcutta is the, the Paris of the 1930s, where the lost generation, and this is a big thing in America, I don't know if it is in, in Australia, but Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and other struggling writers went to Paris between the two great wars and, and found themselves and, and they could afford to live there. They certainly can't go to Paris now. <laughs> Paris is very expensive now. 
and, and you know, there there need to be places where people can get together, not just on the internet and Google Hangouts as we're doing now. And uh, Calcutta is an interesting place in that respect. From what I understand, Portland was about 20 years ago. Yeah, when I bought my house for 20, about 25,000. It was amazing that this was off the map. Cleveland, no. So what was it that got you to to travel to India for six months? Money? Uh, You know, this system that I talked about, being able to play because I'm running out, that only works until something like the sewer system breaks and you've got to pay for that. And I was frankly at the point where, see, I'm not a programmer and I'm not an artist in the sense that I can draw all these things. I didn't know how to make money off my photography, which I hadn't done forever. So I decided that I could teach English in Istanbul and and just get away from it all. And I I was there in Istanbul with my best friend that I met in Istanbul, Emily, just over a cup of tea, just bemoaning that if you wanted a cup of coffee, a decent cup of coffee in, in Istanbul, you had to pay five bucks for it at Starbucks. Who wanted to go there? And five bucks for a cup of coffee. And Emily said to me, Brian, come back to India with me. And I'll show you, show you the coffee shop at the end of the earth. And, and that coffee shop, I what, to get ahead of myself, that coffee shop was in the Himalayas overlooking the clouds, you know. And you really, from the well-aged darkness of that shop, you felt like you were on the edge of the earth. But of course, I said to her at the time, I can't go to India for a cup of coffee. And she said... Uh, with that coffee, you'll get sadhus and snake charmers, all the uh, all the positions of the Kama Sutra carved in stone, and we'll sleep in the Golden Temple. Twenty-five cents a cup. And so I went there for my twenty-five cents a cup of coffee and, and fell in love. And, and 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 the big thing that I fell in love with was that that it was affordable, that adventure, that because I. My first trip was to Paris, and I was paying off the debts for that for years. And you can go to India, and once you know, and you can live on eight to ten dollars a day, easy. And you know, the view from the cheap seats is is better than you live better than the rich people that go to India and live in a bubble. I could travel halfway across India for like about ten dollars a night, ten dollars with a bed, all the way across India, and you, you get a bed for that price. Of course, that's common sleeper class, and it's an adventure, and it's wonderful. And Calcutta is really interesting because it's a, good, it's a really great city. It's the New York City of, uh, of the cultural, they consider it the cultural capital of, of India. And there's hundreds of people who go to volunteer for Mother Teresa's orphanages and, and other uh, facilities. So there's a real collection of of young people, expats living there as it was in Paris in the 20s and 30s. You can go there and and make a new start in your life if you want to, if you need to. If you ever get feeling really burned out, keep that in mind. So you got uh, 
lots of experiences, lots of photos. What are you going to do with them now? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I am thinking about writing a book about India. So I'm going to go back for a year, year or two in India and uh, concentrate on, on writing as much as taking pictures. It um, It's a wonderful place to, to test yourself and to, I need a lot more testing. And as I said, because of my house here, I have the opportunity to do it. I would last about three months in Paris and I'd be broke. But in India, I can stay as long as I want. We Americans get 10-year visas for India. So you can stay continuously for... No. You can only stay for six months. You have to leave, go up to Nepal for a day and come back. Stay for another six months. There's all these wonderful countries. Bangladesh, I went last time. I was in India. That you can slip into for as long as you want and come back. Do you know what it is about photography that attracts you and what appeals to you about it? Well, it's different than it used to be. It's so easy to do these digital, be a digital photographer. I, I um, am trying to find, find ways to mix images and words so it does have meaning and not just, uh, is not just eye candy. There, the, our culture has this voracious images gracious appetite for images and for, you know, really for eye candy. And I think that photography is, you know, easy and hard. It's, it can be hard to take, you know, engaging images. You're not going to get one every day, but it, you know, I remember I gave it up for 20 years to write software, which was hard for me because I wasn't sure that it was valuable and returned to it just because I was traveling and it was like a friend to take when you're traveling because I like it so much. The really honest answer is that people just want pictures. They'll, you know, if I give them, you know, sensational pictures, they'll be happy, but I'm not happy. And I referred you to the, my Pedal Palooza photo essay. And there's many other photo essays in which I try to but a context in which the images have some meaning. And that's what I'm going to try to do with a book on India, because I don't know what the point of photography is. I studied photography last year to try to answer that question. I tried to study what it, what it meant for other people. And it came up with the answer that photography just asks questions and doesn't give you any answers. And a lot of people are satisfied with ask with these little with photographs that ask engaging questions. And though I'm thrilled to get such a picture, it doesn't really fully satisfy me. What would satisfy you? I think in our time, all art is political. That uh, we have a society that runs on images advertising, and that your pictures are either part of the problem or part of the solution. And I don't think if I just take really captivating, beautiful pictures of India, that they're do anybody other than myself that much good. Um, so I'm struggling with that. 
I, I, there, if you go to pileofprints.com, and I called it pileofprints.com because I, that was my, my attitude. I, there's, a, there's a couple of films in there, and there's one, that, the Pile of Prints film, which I, I was taking this, uh, this class uh, for people to create uh, portfolios. And the one thing the instructor says, you just never just toss a pile of prints on, on a desk, you know, expect someone to look at them. And so we, had, we created Leatherbound. We were encouraged to have Leatherbound portfolios and practice opening them before the mirror and with our eyes closed, and put the gloves on and make it into this big, you know, pretentious uh, presentation. And, and, and what you see there is my portfolio in which I did toss a pile of prints on the desk, but try to do it with enough style that it would be fun and engaging. Because always, you know, my work, I, I never want to have just, you know, pretension. I want it to be fun. And so there is a little film in which I, I toss my first pictures from Europe and India at you, you know, just as a pile of prints. And then it's, it's, a, it's an animated film. And, they, and I think it's fun to look at. Everyone seems to enjoy it. So if Monk's Head Max, you know, was mixing text and stories and, and, and images, that's what it was. And, and I'm trapped in that needing to do that, even with my photography. And you certainly, as a writer, can understand the need for words, I think, right? <laughs> yes. Brian suffers from a plight so common to artists and creators. He needs his work to mean something. He needs his work to have some benefit and significance beyond just being a thing. He wants to point his lens on reality and to illustrate some truth or make you question another. And this isn't a new problem. He's been doing this for decades. One of the big themes in, in Monks and was it just an attack on art? As I saw it, you know, modern art that wasn't, that had taken this horrific shortcut where people were creating art and they were just, you know, going straight to the museums, they thought, you know, just creating something unique that would, and not worrying about depicting the world, really engaging people, just creating this whole, this shortcut to, you know, to being special by just uh, finding some unique little gimmick. Three days ago, um, January 2nd, John Berger, art critic and uh, novelist, he, he died um, in Paris, and he was really a major inspiration for monks and for everything I've done. Um, he wrote a book called Ways of Seeing, which was a big inspiration for passing notes, mixing art and images to make a point. And the point, one of the points he makes in that book is that if you look at the history of, oil, of painting, they developed this technique that enabled them to depict the world that almost you could touch anything you saw. And it fit right in with the materialism of the age. And so they were, these painters could be very successful by just, by not just painting a person, but painting everything he possessed. And it was this, you know, very fashionable thing to buy these paintings, but also they were very, these proud images of what people possessed. And we, we judge that period of painting by the masterpieces like Rembrandt, 
who completely inverted the uh, the paradigm. And he was really successful when he was doing that, painting better than anybody else. The things, you know, people's clothes, so you could just run your fingers through their expensive mink coat or whatever. But then he started to paint the things you couldn't see and touch. And, and he became a failure, you know, and he, he died in poverty. But we look on back on that as saying, that's oh, a great masterpiece of art. And there's, Berger goes through all these artists and shows how they, they weren't successful. They could have been, but they chose not to be by fighting against this current of materialism, which the oil painting was sort of founded for and, and with. And that when we talk about art, we try to take those those great master artists and, and, and everybody wants to be one now, but they don't they don't have to work so hard. They just, you know, create something unique and and, and consider it special and consider it art. And when when I made Monks, the basic principle was, it's never art with a capital A. I mean, we're not making art. We're making, like, if we make something so useful that people use it and save it, that's great. But we're not making something that we're calling art. Uh, we're calling, you know, something, I mean, we're making journals and games and useful things. And maybe if we make them so well, people will keep them around. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are these... Um, we have in our own time, just like the growing materialism, the age of Rembrandt, that's what oil painting was almost devised for. And he struggled against that to create his masterpieces. And I think when we, we look at um, the World Wide Web or, you know, chat boxes and all this stuff, it has a, um, its own agenda, sort of, just like oil paint, an agenda of materialism. It has its own agenda of, and I'm not sure what it is, but there's all this uh, disparate little actions and distractions. Uh, and, and we have to somehow fight against that, I think, if we're going to make things of lasting value. It's, 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 it's a real struggle. But I do think his point that every art medium has its own, you know, Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. And his point was the message of, of oil painting was materialism and acquisition and ownership. And the greatest artists found a way to, to invert that and use it for their own purposes, to their own financial ruin. But I do think when we look at the mediums we have today, whether it's the World Wide Web or you know, all these things like Google Chat Hangouts that I don't, don't use, um, thank you for showing me this today, that they all that all these new mediums they have their own agenda where they're going you know distracting you and advertising these products and people have to think about where they want to take them not where they want to be taken by them just watching this video that you mentioned I think it's it's a, a nice way of presenting the pictures. Well, there's several films that try to, um, you know, in ones there's there's the one there's the Berlin 911, which is the one that talks about the big crime theory of uh, America that steal a little and they put you in jail, steal a lot and they make you king. And there's one in Turkey that uh, I told you I worked there for a year before I went to India. And 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 Turkey is a crazy country. Uh, 
a wonderful country, but I feel so much for my friends who are still there and their all the terrorism and everything. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking it seems like it's getting very dangerous in Turkey now. Yeah, and some of that, you know, there's a, a, the terrorism that we have there, the current president, strongman of uh, Turkey, you know, is, you know, did things that led to terrorism. And some of the things he did, the United States asked him to do, which was come in against ISIS and help us in the fight. Because they had some sort of de facto agreement where they weren't, when Turks were, were captured, you know, by ISIS, they were just let go because the government in Turkey wasn't fighting against them. And some of the stuff he did cannot be justified, I think. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he's, they were making peace with, uh, with the Kurds and they, he, you know, started bombing and attacking them. But it's, uh, but that the other film, the film about Turkey, is a fun one because when they, they, you know, it's an Islamic country, ninety percent Islamic, and for a long time there was a secular from uh, Ataturk, their their founding father, their George Washington, had put a secular stamp on the country, and and now they've they've come back with this sort of a democratic Islamic rule, and so the all the money is being made by sort of fundamentalist Islamic families. And uh, and so the women were supposed to wear these uh, uh, raincoats that hid their bodies and these scarves that hid their hairs, hid their, you know, and, and they just really drab, you know, clothes that, that weren't, didn't have any fashion at all. That was tradition. And once they, they got all the money, what, what could they do? Except because they had to, the women had to wear this sort of Islamic fashion to be in the ruling elite there. And so this really funny thing happened where they started to make these really fashionable raincoats and and these like Vogue, you know, there's pictures of Vogue, uh, women looking in Vogue, you know, look, looking like they're dressed for Vogue where they're just wearing raincoats, but they're really expensive raincoats. And so it's, uh, that's what that, one of the photo essays about Turkey is about. Some very provocative shots in there. Um... You know, if, if photography's purpose is to ask questions, there, there are some very interesting questions. Yeah, and that, I was really, um, I did a, that's a, that's a second, the, I did a first version of that that was so unpopular that I did a second version. And the first version was really um, with, a, with a narration. And so those photographs were really uh, shot to... Uh, to take pictures of the struggle in society. There was like a rift in the society between uh, Islam and and uh, and fashion. And just to show that rift and to show like families where the daughter is pulling away, you can tell in some of those pictures from her, her fundamentalist Islamic mother, or that's what it seems like. And just to show the rift in the society there, um, the way they were uh, trying to deal with the two. And in my travels, I really came to love Islam, um, to love um, the religion, you know, and the people that spending time in the mosques, spending time in the um, Sufi shrines. And if I'm never going to convert because I'm a Christian, but if I if I if I was, you know, I would probably convert to Islam.
Glutophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss. Music for this episode comes from Chris Zabriskie, Lee Rosevere, Kai Engel, Roll Music, Steve Combs, Star Paws, Visager, The Jukebox from If Mugs Had Max, and a few of my own compositions. If you want to see any of Brian's photo essays and films, or his other photography, head to pileofprints.com. Or if you would like to learn more about his old multimedia software, If Mugs Had Max, you can listen to the previous episode, and you can go to rivertext.com slash monks. I'll have both those links in the show notes. Most Ludophilia episodes take some 30, maybe 40 hours to produce through interviewing, transcribing, scripting, editing, mastering, sound design, music composition and sequencing, and then finally, any last layers of polish. It's a labour of love for sure, but it can be hard to find the time to do all of this outside of my freelance work and other paying projects like my book. I really want to get these episodes out with more regularity though, so if you enjoy the show, please help me out. You can leave a review on iTunes, share your favourite episodes with your friends and followers, and if, if you can spare a few bucks, you can donate some money. You can make a one-time or a monthly donation via PayPal. There's an orange button at the bottom of woodphilia.net. Or you can commit to a monthly donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash which comes with access to all the episode transcripts as a bonus. And I really can't stress enough that every dollar counts, every share of an episode counts, and every iTunes review or rating helps me out in some small way. I really appreciate it. If you have ideas or suggestions, you can always also write in richard at woodophilia.net, or you can tweet me at mossrc, or on the show account at Ludophilia. Until next time, remember what Brian said, he who controls the fun controls the future. I'm going to leave you with these little bits I couldn't find a place for anywhere. See ya. What I would say is that creativity is entertainment. What I mean is you have to entertain. When I create things, like if monks, I'm thinking, am I entertaining the audience? Am I engaging them constantly? There was a little painting program, a little Japanese sumi painting program that was the inspiration for the original cloister, that when you open up the paint program, you looked into a little Japanese courtyard. I think... We are inspired by um, a few things, but in a lot of ways, we were just sitting around drinking beer and thinking about the craziest, farthest out things we could do and just doing them. And I, I do feel kind of um, like before I die, I want to do something else that's uh, as engaging as what I did 25 years ago or whenever, however much it is. <laughs>